Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. I'm thrilled to introduce our esteemed guest for today, Professor Harold James, a renowned authority on European history and international affairs. Professor James holds the distinguished title of Claude and Laura Kelly Professor in European Studies at Princeton University and his expertise in history is equally matched by his insights into international economic trends. He has penned numerous significant works, uh, too many for me to mention them all, but we'll put a list in the show notes so that you can look them up, including his publications are The History of the Deutsche Bank, the largest German bank that he wrote, and a book called The End of Globalization, not to mention his most recent thought-provoking book, Seven Crashes, the Economic Crises that Shaped Globalization. It's a privilege to have him here today with us in our podcast, and we will discuss topics that are related to his work and his latest publication, namely the way in which global crises shape globalization, shape the outcome of world history. So welcome. Glad to have you here on the show. It's great to be with you, Matthias. So to begin, because I assume that not everyone will have read your latest book yet. I'm sure many will hopefully do it afterwards. So could you walk us very briefly through the, the economic crises that you identify in your book and why do you think they were so decisive in shaping globalization? Right. The book is about major turning points in the history of globalization. And so it's in a way dealing with the question is globalization an inexorable process? Does it just go on and on? Or I think instead it's not at all inexorable. It's interrupted. It goes forwards and backwards and uh, goes in odd directions. And so I took what I thought to be seven big turning points. The first in the middle of the 19th century, the big uh, harvest crisis, industrial crisis, business crisis, financial crisis, political crisis as well, because in the end it produced the revolutions of 1848. Then I look at the crash of 1873. That's the w moment that gave the German word crack to the rest of the world. So that's why we talk about crashes. Then I talk about the First World War and its consequences, because that's really the big disruption of 19th century globalization. The Great Depression, which is when the globalization of the 19th century finally broke down. Um, the 1970s, the oil shock and the aftermath of the oil shock or the two oil shocks. The 2007-2008 financial crisis and the recent... COVID 
and then security crisis with the Russian attack on Ukraine. The point of these crises is that they're all really quite different to each other, although there are comparisons and similarities between some of them. The turning points in particular, the one that I start with, and the 1970s, are the story of supply shocks. And you know, it seems to me that what we're in at the moment is also a supply shock. So that looks as if it's the, the, the analogy. And those supply shocks led to more rather than less globalization. So the, the beginning in the middle of the 19th century was indeed this crisis. And then after that, there's a surge of globalization. After the 1970s, there's a surge of globalization. And it contrasts really dramatically with demand shocks notably the Great Depression, but also the 2008 financial crisis, uh, which has very, very many analogies, I think, correctly drawn by many people to the Depression. And in those situations, there's a halting or a pausing of globalization, and people start to talk about the end of globalization, or in the more recent case, a slowdown of globalization, slobalization. So the fundamental distinction is between supply shocks, negative supply shocks that drive in the end more globalization and negative demand shocks that tend to kill globalization. When we talk about crises, obviously that implies the idea of a climax, something that happens. For some people also that may imply that it's something that happens suddenly or surprisingly. Now, some things did occur seemingly out of nowhere for many people, the the COVID pandemic. One such example, I, I guess, although obviously many people or experts had warned that such a pandemic in one way or another might happen. Others seem to have been a long time in the making. So is that something that you can see? What about climate change, for example? Is that something that will eventually also reach crisis point and then have some kind of implications on globalization? Is it a surprising thing or is it something that is a slow build up and then reaches the crisis point eventually? Yes, I think you're right to make that distinction. I mean, obviously, there are deeper causes with all these problems, but the, the, the two moments that I started with, or two or three moments that I started with of supply shocks, are really quite sudden and unexpected. So it's the potato blight, the the devastation of the potato crop in Ireland and then in Northern Europe. And that's really something that's unexpected. Uh, and people have gone back and calculated the probability of such a big harvest failure. And if you measure it in statistical terms, it's very, very low, but it suddenly happens. Uh, COVID, you mentioned, is also something that seems to come out of nowhere. Although, you know, also, you, I think, are right to point out that a globalized world is really very, very vulnerable to infectious diseases spreading quickly. And uh, we had discussions whether SARS, the avian flu, or whether Ebola might have a similar effect. In, in that sense, there's a vulnerability. And when you mention climate change, uh, yes, indeed, I mean, climate change also makes for more vulnerabilities uh, because, you know, not only of the direct effects of flooding, coastal areas, but also areas becoming arid, harvest failing, and they will also then translate into into 
political crises as well. And in some ways, I think we are already in a, in a climate crisis. And uh, you can see, I mean, even in, for instance, if you want to tell the story of the Arab Spring, it's to do with the fallout from the financial crisis, but it's also to do with a period of drought in the Middle East uh, that accentuated then the civil war in, in Syria. Is it fair to say that we as human beings are notoriously bad at predicting and foreseeing these crises so that we're perennially surprised when something happens, whatever it is, whether it's a financial crisis, a political crisis? Absolutely. I, I, I mean, in a sense, of course, though, if it had been completely predicted in advance, it wouldn't be a crisis. You know, we'd have factored it in and uh, the financial markets would have priced it in. And so you know, people who look at financial markets will think of uh, these moments of shocks as moments where there are big price movements that couldn't have been expected, weren't expected before and weren't priced into the market expectations. Is it even possible? I mean, we've talked about uh, these topics here on, on this podcast, and there are obviously also people who, who work in the forecast business. Now you're a historian, so you tend to look backwards, uh, I guess, rather than f than forward. But is that even uh, possible or at what cost? I, just a, a small example, obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, the uh, the COVID pandemic, people criticized governments, for example, for not having stockpiled enough face masks and all these kind of things. The question is now, would that have even made sense uh, to be so prepared because, of course, you can't really know what kind of crisis will come next. So if you prepare for every possible instance of a crisis that might approach, that also comes at a tremendous cost for society if you have to you know, stockpile essentially not just masks for the next pandemic, but also all sorts of other items uh, and take all sorts of other precautionary measures. Is it sometimes better to just live along and then tackle issues when they up? I, I think you have to do something of both. I mean, some kind of preparedness in the case of disasters, having helicopters, transport planes that you can use to fly food and medical equipment to places that have suffered a disaster, or having stocks of food, uh, emergency stocks of food. Those are all really rational things to do. But in terms of being able to combat the precise cause, uh, that I think requires flexibility or resilience. And you know, I think one of the amazing stories of the aftermath of the COVID uh, crisis was the rapidity with which the DNA structure was uncovered. And that then allows very, very quickly the formulation of an effective response in the form of the mRNA vaccines. And you know, that's an example where there's really deep research that's been going on for a long time. And the principle of the mRNA vaccine was already there in the 1990s. And the thought is that it may be useful in terms of treating tropical diseases. Um, but then something comes up and you can repurpose a response that existed for something else. And then when that response is there, you find that it can be repurposed for yet other causes. And, um, you know, one of the, the fundamental interpretations or analyses of the book is how these crises moments, uh, moments of shortages and moments of great political tension, also 
generate really productive responses and in particular the application of technologies that are already there where the use in that particular context has not been thought of yet and so it's a question of really quick learning and actually human societies are really quite good at doing that uh, but some are better than others and you know that's yet another line of argument in the book that in a world where there are many many different political systems you can also look at the political systems and see how they respond to these crises and so some responses are better than others and uh, there's an institutional learning that takes place as a result of responding to a particular shock i think that's a, a fascinating point i think there were the two things that i would like to drill a little bit deeper on and one is that you said well crises also enable developments uh, so in that sense although it's maybe a terrible thing to say because a lot of crises also come along with uh, tremendous uh, human suffering but could you also spin these crises in a sometimes positive way in the sense that you need or society needs these to reach this boiling point to advance on some of these issues, advance on, as you said, the vaccination, the mRNA technology, advance maybe on uh, other issues. I remember in the, in the 80s or 90s, there was the, the ozone layer that uh, suddenly became fragile over Australia, I think particularly. And then at some point, uh, the world came together and they phased out Those uh, fluor uh, gases, I think, uh, that were used in sprays and, and refrigerators and all that kind of stuff to the point where now I think the ozone layer has largely closed again. So do we need these moments of crisis to advance uh, certain issues that otherwise might not move along for reasons of inertia or whatever? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are obviously all kinds of vested interests that don't like the idea of change and that's what the book is full of, of examples of that and then how in an extreme situation you realize that you do have to change. And so for instance the railway locomotive is regarded as something that's quite interesting but potentially dangerous and disruptive and you know, it's, it's maybe a fun curiosity to have on short stretches so the first British railway between Stockton and Darlington. It's not a very long stretch. Or in Germany, the distance between Nuremberg and Fürth, the first German line that was opened in 1835. Those are not really going to do very much because they don't create a network. And so it's only when you've got the sense that you've had a massive problem of feeding people that you really see that you need the network effects. And then All the benefits that were potentially there already with the with the railroad get realized. Um, or you know the, the the other big case I look at in the book is in the 1970s. The shortages and supply problems then gave a big push to containerization, and it's containerization that really revolutionized world trade. But the container ship is not a particularly novel idea. There had been container ships before. There was a container line that did regular shipments between New York and Florida. Uh, but most of the world, there are trade unions that say, we don't want our jobs to be lost because of the way that containerization would uh, eliminate the job of the longshoremen, the dockers in, in, in Britain. And so it's, it's, it's only in a rather extreme situation that governments will think, well, 
Yes, I mean, obviously there are these interests, but we need to sacrifice them uh, because we're just facing such a such a big emergency. And you know, I, th- I think uh, you you can you can project that forward as well uh, to think of the way in which people will deal with subsequent future uh, shortages and emergencies. So it's not necessarily that something completely new comes up in a crisis, but it's something that is already there, but for one reason or another did not get the amount of traction that uh, might be necessary for it to to be realized on full scale. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, or even, you know, what we're doing at the moment, uh, you know, talking with a video link and a recording, you know, that that's not a new technology that's been around for a long time, but it became very, very much more popular after the pandemic and uh, remote working, which again, technically had been possible for a long time, suddenly becomes much more prevalent or telemedicine or tele-education, uh, remote learning courses. You know, and all these things really have the capacity to transform the world. The other thing you mentioned, which I find uh, fascinating, and I would like to talk a little bit more about that, is that obviously the the way in which a society comes out of a crisis, any crisis, depends on uh, how well it deals with it, how creative, how resilient it is. And you said different political systems fare differently well on that end. So what do you mean with that? Which political systems work better for a crisis and which ones don't? That, that's a, that's a I, I, I think, an enormously interesting and deep question to explore. And I, I think it's not easy to give a simple answer to that and to say that democracies always work better or autocracies always work better. It depends really on quite specific measures of performance. But what was very clear, for instance, in the 19th century was that the old-style governments of Europe were incapable of responding to the crisis. And uh, so what the crisis did was to push for more democracy, more constitutionalization, uh, more responsible government, more responsive government. And those were not necessarily democracies in the modern sense. One of the most effective governments in the middle of the 19th century in terms of organizing the response to the aftermath of the social and political crisis was the Second Empire in France. So what we would think of today as an autocracy, but an autocracy that was produced by referendum and by election, but where Napoleon III really very consciously reorganizes uh, society. You know, I think we have exactly that discussion after COVID, which societies were good at dealing with it, which were not good at dealing with it. You know, there were remarkable swings of interpretation as well, because I think at first uh, there was a widespread thought that uh, China, with a greater degree of centralization and autocracy, had dealt with COVID more effectively. And then there was the reverse sentiment that uh, they'd gone for lockdowns that were just too extreme and that they'd produced a really quite substantial economic political cost as well from the lockdown regime. And so the Chinese handling of COVID now looks like, to me at least, an example of how an autocratic regime may not be responsible or responsive uh, to what the public is thinking. I 
I think until fairly recently, if you talk to many people, especially when it comes to economic development, uh, a lot of people would say that an authoritarian model such as the Chinese is better, more efficient than a democratic, uh, often compared, for example, to India, which, you know, uh, by all for all intents and purposes, is a democracy uh, and has had a much more difficult time developing economically over the past couple of decades. Uh, but that may have changed a little bit with COVID. Also, when it comes to societal creativity at finding solutions, would you say that also matters? For example, I think that all of the vaccinations that came out of the COVID crisis, the COVID vaccinations were developed in Western countries, if I'm not mistaken. Is that a coincidence or does that also have something to do with the political environment or the societal system that we operate in? I, I don't think Western countries have a monopoly on technical invention. You know, obviously also many of the components and the uh, parts that went into making the distribution system for a vaccine effective came from all over the world. And so that time um, there were calculations of where the parts that were necessary to produce either of the big vaccines, the Moderna or the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine. So BioNTech-Pfizer Apparently, the parts come from 28 different countries. So it, it, it really shows, actually, the importance of being networked and having a big resource capacity in terms of suppliers. You, you, you know, I mean, I think also one of the key stories of the last 20 or 30 years is that Western countries are losing their monopoly on innovation And innovation is being more diffused. So if we're take, talking about AI applications, uh, there are many, many that are developed in China rather than in Europe or in the United States or Canada. So we see the vaccines, as you mentioned, as a, a product of globalization, as you said, 28 countries involved. You also mentioned, obviously, the production is a different matter than the development of the vaccine itself. Why is it then that... Everybody talks about not the end of globalization, but at least a slowdown or even a retraction. Why do we seem to go back on uh, things that apparently were successful, have uh, brought uh, economic well-being to the world? Why is the globalization currently so unpopular? Yeah, this is obviously also not something that's new after 2020, but had been building up for a long time. I think a number of forces pushing for this. And um, one is that it's really very difficult to distinguish the effects of globalization and the effects of technical change. When workers are losing their jobs, it may be because of globalization, it may be because of technical change. The reaction tends to be uh, to try to stop either of those things from happening. You know, both globalization and technology also change the distribution of income, change the distribution of wealth. People are very clear when they're losing out. When they're potentially gaining, they don't see that as much. So you know, I think consumers everywhere have largely benefited from globalization. But what they see is the way in which they're losing out in particular areas. And you know, the big losers of globalization have probably been, in the past, skilled and unskilled workers 
in the major industrial countries. At the moment, that range of people who are losing from globalization, but I think more and more from technology, is going into the middle classes and the professional classes of the industrial countries. So teachers, lawyers, these are all occupations that are under threat as a result fundamentally of the technology rather than of globalization. But it produces a feeling that we're we're changing as a society, we're losing something. And where many people are clearly very, very uncomfortable with, with that. The flip side of that is that we're confronting enormous challenges uh, and that we need both the resources that globalization bring and the resources that technology bring in order to deal with those challenges, many of them obviously also resulting from the process of globalization or technical change itself. What you're alluding to is obviously the, the backlash by people who are in one way or another negatively affected by a change, whether this is technologically or through something like globalization. And you also mentioned earlier that this is in fact not new. We had it uh, in the, you know, when you mentioned containerization, for example, that the unions try to fight it because it would affect the longshoremen. So that is, I guess, very similar in terms of the nature of, of the dispute. But there's something else that seemingly threatens globalization and that's more geopolitical in nature and that is the building up of a conflict between primarily two countries and their entourage i might say which is china and the u.s obviously isn't that also a direct consequence of globalization china becoming more assertive because it becomes or it has become economically much better off after several decades of benefiting from essentially from globalization so could you say that in some weird way globalization created some successes that may threaten globalization itself because it pits different systems, different types of countries against each other increasingly? Yes. The, the increasing tension between China and the United States is in, in many ways a product, clearly, of the big economic success of China since the late 1970s and the beginning of the Chinese opening under Deng Xiaoping. It's really interesting, I think, to push a bit harder on that particular issue because neither China nor the United States wants to give up on globalization. They both depend on globalization. They depend on globalization for different things. But for instance, you know, dealing with the pandemic, you know, people realize that you know, something like 80% of the pharmaceuticals in the United States come directly or indirectly from China. Very often there are generics that are made in India, but the generics depend on sourcing from China as well, so there are supply chains. But China is also not going to give up on globalization. China 2025 strategy was supposed to give a more domestic emphasis, but they're, not, uh, they're still dependent on foreign trade. And really, you know, I think there are just a very few countries that really turn their back completely on globalization. So North Korea or Cuba or Venezuela or today, and that's you know, one of the most problematical areas, Russia is turning away from globalization for security reasons. But you know, that's a very, very different matter, I think, than saying that there's this big coalition 
of anti-globalizers. In fact, you know, most of the world is very enthusiastic about globalization and they're, they're keen to have more of it, not less of it. Um, and, you know, where there are hesitations, they are, as we've discussed before, mostly in the big industrial countries. But the big industrial countries also realize the extent to which they're caught up in this system and they're really in some kind of complex network that actually benefits them, but that they certainly can't escape from. You mentioned good intentions, but nevertheless, good intentions or, or intentions per se do not always preclude things from happening uh, differently. I found it interesting that you mentioned uh, Russia was retracting from globalization for security reasons. I think that's also something that people might discuss, whether it's really security issues or uh, some sort of imperialism that uh, drives uh, Russian politics. I guess that's debatable. Mm. I, I was just... Uh, To get a little bit deeper on that, uh, I think you're right. Countries are entrenched uh, to an extent economically that no one would really benefit from a shutdown or a severe limitation of global trade or globalization. But if I compare that, and you're an expert on that, to the time before the First World War, wasn't that in a certain way similar? I think you know the beginning of the 20th century was a very, very globalized uh, time for the, the possibilities of, of that era. So there was no real kind of objective interest of any of the countries involved in starting a, a major war. But nevertheless, you know, the countries got on a trajectory and then the war started. I mean, I'm oversimplifying things now, of course, but uh, sometimes it's sad that, uh, you know, the, the powers, they, they saw what was happening, but they seeingly, they, they slid into a major disaster. So is the, the argument that some people make when it comes to China, when it comes to Taiwan and other issues that are related to that, saying, well, you know, it's not going to happen, we won't have war, because all the countries know that it's not going to be in their interest. Is that really something that you can claim, or is that also a bit naive? Well, you're absolutely right to make the parallels with the world before 1914, because that is indeed, there's a very structural similarity in the arguments that were made by the advocates of more trade, more interconnectedness before the First World War and uh, today. And, um, you know, the line exactly goes like that, that, uh, you know, the more you're connected with trade, the more you're dependent on it. And so you're not going to risk that by doing something silly. And um, then in 1914, there's one of these, go back to that conversation that we started with, uh, these little odd accidents that an uh, archduke uh, gets assassinated in Sarajevo and the world falls into a war. There are obvious differences as well that uh, we're in a nuclear age that changes the dynamics. We're in a world where we're more conscious of having global problems that we face in common. Uh, so whether it's health issues or climate change issues, uh, we, we see uh, those global issues. But um, It would be foolish, I mean, particularly at the moment, to think that we live in a peaceful world. And one of the things I think that I find characteristic of supply crises in the past is that everybody tries to instrumentalize them for 
power political reasons. And uh, if there's a shortage, um, and if you're controlling the goods that's uh, short, um, you think that you can get some political muscle out of that. And you know, fundamentally, that's also one of the Russian calculations, that they control a lot of energy, uh, oil and gas, and that they could use that energy control in order to exert a political diplomatic leverage on the rest of the world. And that was tried also in the 1970s. You know, on the whole, the countries that do that don't succeed in really doing that. You know, something happens, they they realize the extent to which they're locked into the system, or if they really reject the system, they see the costs of it. And we've had instances of that in the past as well. And I think uh, those historical lessons may be relevant uh, to to Russia today. A bold prediction, the world in 10 years. Harold, we have one fixed segment in our podcast, and that is what we call a bold prediction, the world in 10 years. And it's invariably difficult for our guests to do that because, as uh, I don't know, someone quipped, uh, predictions are difficult because they are always about the future. So I know that's going to be difficult, but still I would like to ask you to give your best guess on where we're going to stand when it comes to crises and globalization in 10 years. Where will the world be? Actually, uh, I don't know, Matthias, maybe you'll be surprised or disappointed. I don't find that that difficult to say. I think the world will be more connected and more globalized in 10 years' time. I don't think we're going to see a rollback of globalization, but I think it will also be more conflicted and more contested. Uh, so, you know, we will have both more globalization and more fake news and uh, disinformation and political confusion and uncertainty. You know, that strikes me as being characteristic of a world that is in the process of very rapid change. The main forecast really depends on this idea that we're, we're going to get a much greater rate of technical change uh, in the next 10 years than we had, for instance, over the last 20 years. So you're bullish uh, when it comes to globalization. Thank you. No, thank you very much for being to the point. I'm not disappointed at all. I'm uh, delighted. I usually say this uh, to sympathize with my guests who uh, most of the time have difficulties making such predictions. Uh, that's why I always tell them that we probably won't revisit what they said in 10 years from now, but maybe we will. So if this podcast is still around in 10 years, maybe we'll go back and uh, look at some of the predictions and maybe we can do a follow-up uh, on that. Yeah, that would be fascinating, yes. So is that just a feeling or is it true that we the crises that we witness, they become more and more frequent or is it just a byproduct of the the simple speed that we witness due to technological advances do we have more crises happening simultaneously than in the past or is that just an impression that kind of glorifies the good old days where everything was easier simpler i don't think so if you think of the world in 1939 or 1914 or 1848 great cambridge historian christopher clark just did a book on 1848, and he described 1848 in that book as the first polycrisis. You know, I'm not quite sure whether it's even the first one of that, because the world of the French Revolution was also like that, in which everything seemed to be changing at the same time. Everything was in the air, and crises are always related to each other. They're, they're, they're linked, I mean, in the same way as 
you know, many diseases, not at all simple, you know, even something like COVID is not simple if you think of the different ways in which it manifests itself. It's incredibly complicated. So, you know, we shouldn't think of crisis as simply focused on one thing, but crisis is the moment of a world that's being disrupted and changing very, very quickly. But what, I mean, what is certainly changing, I guess, is the the speed of communication, right? There's, yes. So everything is basically transmitted live across the globe in different ways also with different spins on it. And that's mm -hmm. probably something that took much, much longer in, in previous crises. Not that much longer. The telegram is already, so the first transatlantic cable is in the 1860s. And that's, that's also linked to the way in which crises get connected with each other. Okay, that's that's good to point out. So maybe it was not instantaneously, but it could be in the news the next day in the newspaper. This podcast is called Business Diplomacy Today. So we look at these major issues, geopolitical, international relations, global crises from a business angle or looking at it from the perspective of someone in business. Now, if you're a CEO, say, of a company and you look at all these things and what it means for business, is there probably not much to do in terms of influencing any of these global crises as an individual company leader, even if you're running a very, very large company? But what can you do to prepare for it? Uh, or do you just wait and see what happens? First of all, there's a premium on being flexible and on breaking with tradition. So, for instance, Germany was very, very dependent on Russian energy. But you managed a transition to building LNG terminals very quickly. And that's an example of the kind of flexibility. You mustn't get committed to an established way of doing things. You must be flexible. And I think, you know, modestly, I would say that reading long historical accounts, you know, not just of things that happened over the last 10 years, but things that happened over the previous 200 or 2,000 years, is a good way of preparing yourself for this feeling that the world is capable of quite dramatic change in a short period of time. That's an excellent advice so you learn from history to be able to shape the future or at least uh, to accommodate it. I find it interesting that you mentioned uh, German flexibility and I know that you're someone who knows Germany very well. So that was in a certain way a bit surprising because at least we Germans often see ourselves as not being very flexible at uh, being too slow when it comes to change, when it comes to building infrastructure projects and you probably know a lot of those that are being discussed in Germany. So why do you say that Germany proved to be so flexible? Was it again, coming back to what we discussed earlier, the sheer necessity of this boiling point of a, of a crisis that forced uh, Germans to overcome their inertia, their, you know, uh, propensity for endless discussions and for perfectionism maybe also, which I guess plays also a role? Yes. I mean, you know, obviously and indeed, you know, it's a, we're, we're, the country is full of problematic public investment projects. So I've flown through Berlin-Brandenburg International Airport, I've been through the Stuttgart train station, I've been to the Elbphilharmonie, uh, I've seen the Humboldt Forum. Yeah, I mean, all these things are examples of sort of fantastic cost overruns and uh, inflexibility. But I think also the LNG story is points in the other direction, that if, if you're under pressure, you can do it. And, and in, in Germany, and clearly there is a, a big 
proclivity for incremental change rather than dramatic change. Um, and there's a self-reflection on that that says that this is one of the German weaknesses, but you know, that self-reflection is the beginning of a new flexibility. That's a nice way of putting it. We've almost come to the end of our um, episode, uh, so I just want to get to the other fixed segment that we have in our podcast, and that is what we call... Executive Briefing. What you should read now. And there we ask our guests to give uh, some recommendations on what uh, people could read if they want to dive deeper on the issues that we have discussed. And one thing that we'll obviously do, we'll put your publications in there because I think they're an excellent starting point to understand better what you've been working on, what you think and what preoccupies you in your, in your work. Uh, but are there any other suggestions that you have uh, that people might want to look at? I, I mean, I, I would really urge your listeners to read and think about two very important books that have come out uh, over the last uh, few months. One, actually, uh, by a German business leader, Matthias Dupfner's Trade Trap, How to Stop Doing Businesses with Dictators, is the subtitle of it, is a very, very thoughtful reflection on how people got caught in globalization in the wrong way. And uh, it lays out an ambitious agenda of how to get out of it. And in a similar direction, in a way, talking about how globalization can be weaponized, a book by two American political scientists, Henry Farrell and Abe Newman, Abraham Newman, uh, which is called Underground Empire, How America Weaponized the World Economy. I think both these books give a sense of what we were talking about in the main talk, about how at these moments of scarcity, every kind of commodity, every kind of service, uh, Newman and Farrell deal quite a lot with financial services, can become weaponized. And uh, it's that weaponization that produces the sense of being a zero-sum game and can be very destructive in terms of what it does to the globalization process. And, you know, I, th I think both books really give a good sense of the way in which we're at the moment in a period of intense disruption. Thank you very much. We'll add those uh, two titles uh, to our uh, list uh, that you can find in the show notes together with your publications. And that will make for a pretty substantive but very interesting reading a list and i think that's also two good things that resonate very well with me is uh, first of all you got to read books uh, you can't explain and understand everything through tweets so although i'm i'm very much in favor of social media but there are some limitations of what it can do and the other is of course you have to understand history if you want to comprehend what's happening right now and what's coming next Harold, that was a very interesting session. Thank you very much for being with us. It's a great pleasure, Matthias. Wonderful to be with you. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.